Welcome to Rumor Flies, everybody. I'm Josh. I'm Ryan. And I'm Greg. Greg's not here no. this week, so we're going to just... You, you guys know the deal. Yeah, okay. Uh, we are here today to talk about another installment on our survival myths. But, 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 but you're missing something, Josh. We're required to do this till August. Oh, okay. Well, before we get into our survival myths... We don't have an eight-minute intro this time, all right? Um... We are, like we mentioned before, going to be at the Pottern Love Convention, and we are going to have a link for you guys if you want to come, check it out, hang out with us, and stuff like that. Go to pottern.love and enter the code RUMOR, not Canadian or British style, no. just with an O-R, not an O-U-R. R-U-M-O-R. And you can get a discount on your, I believe it's hotel stay and the convention. So, Oh, it's a twofer. Yeah. Well, we're going to be getting into more than a twofer in a minute. <laughs> also, like I said, we still have something in the works. Uh, it may be well done by the time you hear this episode, but uh, we God definitely damn, I really want to tell them. We definitely will be doing a trivia show on oh, that Saturday. Yes. Yeah. It's confirmed. We yeah. will be doing that. So if you guys want to come possibly participate with us, uh, maybe win some cool shit. Maybe the first rumor fly shirts to ever be hot off the press. We're not committing to it, but we're not not committing to it either. We'll we'll make it worth your while. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. We're not 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 n- not committing to it. It may be there. It may not be. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> okay, um, and I do want to also mention that we will have something special at the end of this episode for one of our particular twitter followers yeah this is what you get for interacting with us on twitter we do things for you all right help should me be that easy help you we should be asking for itunes reviews which we haven't done like this entire season but i no, will say we haven't. <laughs> we haven't but i will say that uh if you just interact with us on Twitter, that'd be great. We love it. We, uh, You know what? I'm just going to stop right there because I don't want to talk about Twitter culture. <laughs> okay. I'm going to kick off the first topic this evening. And my first topic uh, kind of entails three separate things, and it is all about hypothermia. Now, uh, for, for the record, we already covered the whole alcohol warms you up thing very briefly, I think. I really wanted to put this in the episode, but I found out they already talked about it. Doesn't warm me up. Mythbusters did it. They actually eat the St. Bernard's. All right. Keep going, Josh. That's so sad. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, so, oh, yeah. Also, their coats oh. make great underwear. I, you're surviving, all right? I, I mean, I get it. You do what you got to do. Like, uh, oh, shit. What's the movie with with, uh, with Leo with the in the horse with the bear? Titanic. Oh, okay. I thought it was Basketball Diaries, but you're right. Yes, it is The Revenant. Um, Okay, so basically about hypothermia. This is basically three small myths rolled up into one really wonderful Paco that I'm going to cover today. Um, Yeah, we're going to be covering, like, for this episode, we're pretty much talking specifically about just cold winter survival myths. This is like if you just get plopped in Skyrim at some point. We're recording this during the summer, so we don't have to worry about that Skyrim's right now. Skyrim's for the Nords. Um, but I, I will say... Oh, you, you racist. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, this is just cold mist. Last time we did what? It was at sea? Yeah, I think it was at sea. We talked yeah. about punching sharks and shit. We did. Um, I will say that um, this... I'm going to name this episode our honorary Dave Stecco episode. If you have any questions about being we in the cold... Got him on this episode! <laughs> please contact Dave Stecco. Um... Uh, with blurry photos or candy chat. Why didn't you tell me about that? I didn't think about it until just now. you know he now. went to Antarctica? Yeah, I, I heard that. You I don't know. full Kermit. <laughs> I told you it's an orange. Of course it's an orange. 
<laughs> okay, shout out Dave Stecco, shout out Blurry Photos, shout out uh, David Flora. Anyway, um, so the first topic about hypothermia specifically is going to be you take a victim and you put them in a jacuzzi. A victim or, of what? Uh, of hypothermia. Okay. A victim of hypothermia. Um, and you put them in a jacuzzi or a hot tub of, uh, of, um, of warm water or anything like that. So I just want to get this out the way for, for before we get into this. It's not very likely that if you're somewhere where an individual gets hypothermia, that you're going to have an inflatable jacuzzi just to drop them in. Can I do my preamble to that? Okay, go ahead. I don't think that this is, it might be, but I was a lifeguard, as you've pointed out before, uh, and my main issue wasn't four-year-olds drowning. It was the the epidemic of running in slow-mo all the time. Oh, I thought it was peeing in the pool. Oh, that's fair. It wasn't peeing in the pool either. It was geriatrics. Just old people are the bane of my existence. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, existence. Um, it was old people. You heard it here, folks. Whatever. They're not listening. Uh, they get by old people. I mean, like, you know, what? I'm not going to get in their 30s. Say, you know, you should really throw away that shovel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That noose is getting a little short there, bro. This is a situation where specifications would not be helpful. Anyway, uh, so what would happen is some people of the um, Older crowd. senior discount variety <laughs> were able to, they, they would go into the hot tub, which is like a thousand degrees over at the country club that I was lifeguarding at. And then they would immediately get into the cold dip that was about uh, five feet away. And then get back into the hot tub. Yeah, you don't do that. And then get that. back into the cold tub. The cold is about 50 degrees. doesn't sound terrible when you're outside. That actually sounds great when you're outside. When you're in the water, it's terrible. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, but they get back in the hot tub, go back and forth. And we had to watch them and actually tell them to stop doing it because they could possibly go into shock. That's what I was told to do to them. I don't know how true it is or not. But the fact is, it's just like it felt really awkward having to tell. It's one thing to tell a kid not to run, but to tell an old person what they can't do. It feels really awkward. Well, I mean, I kind of get that, but it's <laughs> it's also kind of like the show where it's, where it's like, you should do this. And it's like, no, you shouldn't because you'll kill someone. So that's I get the reason if you need to warm up somebody if they're going through hypothermia. But there's also um, it's called like a catatonic catalytic uh, it, shock. That's my word. Yeah, no, and um, just as you've heard many times, rumor flies, Ryan shitting all over my. No, topic. I was. I <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like I was saying though, you don't normally have a a readily hot spring or anything like that at your disposal. So it's kind of a skewed myth in that sense. But I'm still gonna bite. You know, I'll I'll, I'll go down with this scenario and, and and see what it has to offer. So you do want to immediately try to warm someone up, but not by rapidly dropping their body temperature, um, by putting them in the, or increasing their body temperature. I'm sorry, by putting them in a jacuzzi or anything like that. Like Ryan mentioned, such a drastic change in body temperature could result in nausea, vomiting, or even a heart attack due to the shock um, of the sensation of being warmed up so quickly. Well, it's why they advise against like polar bear clubs. Yes, that's like why, that's like that's literally the health risk. Yeah, that's I, I didn't even think about that. There's but that's also a very the element of getting out of the cold water in a cold environment, but a lot of it's it, the big danger is really that shock when you hit the water. Also, Absolutely. Uh, which no, is usually well below fifty. <laughs> another thing that Dave could have elaborated for us. Apparently, there's something called the 300 degree club. Where, oh yeah, I did. I think he no. talked. About, I think he talked about this to us. Um, uh, yeah, the, the uh, during an episode. Yeah, the 300 degree club is essentially. Uh, I would assume scientists. I don't get who else would be in Antarctica. Uh, 
get naked, run around the either geographical North Pole or the actual I thought it was um, the actual polar North Pole. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's still like it's still fucking cold. Negative 100 Fahrenheit outside. Yeah. They immediately run a circle around the pole because they actually have a little pole stuck right where it's supposed to be or where it was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I hear they, they run, play tetherball. They run, a, they run a lap or two around it, then immediately run into it. That's funny. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> then they immediately run into a 200 degree Fahrenheit sauna. So within the span of like five minutes at most, they go f- through a range of 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I remember talking about which that. doesn't sound as impressive in Celsius, but that's why we don't use Celsius. No, because we sound more extreme it. in America. Nobody uses Celsius. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> well, uh, the best way to warm someone up is by taking a warm water bottle and applying it under their armpits, is the way they recommend, or skin to skin contact. Even though that is also highly debated whether that actually works or not. I don't want to hug nobody. I don't blame you. Um, I'll hug you, though, not Greg. But doesn't that put you at risk of hypothermia, too, technically? So if- that's part of the problem with skin-to-skin contact is is most sleeping bags don't fit two people inside of it. Um, and you're sacrificing your own body warmth to help warm someone else up. So you both could get hypothermia that way. Off could topic. Could body be that cold that it would do that to you? One more time. If you're the one giving the warmth, could someone really be cold enough to give you hypothermia? Well, you're warm. neglecting your own warmth, though, by sharing uh, the sleeping bag. And also, right. you're probably in a cold area, too, so you're exposing yourself to the elements. Um, okay, there that uh, takes care of uh, warming someone up in a uh, jacuzzi. The next myth about hypothermia is feeding a victim to help regulate their body temperature. After midnight? After midnight. My thought process here relates to starving a fever and feeding a cold, which I believe we have brought up before. I'm not entirely sure because I don't remember half the shit we talk about, but I'm pretty sure we've talked about it before. And But this is only my opinion, but it, to me, it makes sense, which, again, obviously, I'm biased. There is some truth to this as well. Hot liquids or high-carb foods are uh, a good way to speed up your metabolism and increase your body temperature in small increments. Much like putting hot water bottles under your armpit, it's a way to not very quickly warm up the body temperature, but still do it. By doing such drastic changes, like we mentioned, your body will go into shock. So doing it in small increments like that is actually the way to go. And they actually say the best remedy for severe situations of hypothermia is to drink warm sugar water because your digestive system actually shuts down from from that. Um, So... Oddly enough, an, uh, another reference to sugar and water on this on this podcast. We'll never escape that guy. That is his name. <laughs> Wait, so you've been hearing me quote him? I can't remember his name several times, no. but you never remembered his name. No, no, I just remember sugar. Vincent D'Onofrio. That's what you called him every time. He was not named Vincent D'Onofrio, Men in Black. In my world, he is. Um, which, by the way, I was thinking about this the last time you mentioned it. I am not even one hundred percent sure it's Vincent D'Onofrio. It is. So, okay. It is. <laughs> I was pretty sure it was, but I, I wasn't certain. Um, I didn't check my IMDb on that one. So the last topic of my devil's threesome is to not let a hypothermia victim go to sleep. Hey! (laughs) Wake up! Um, This one is actually tricky. Are you warm yet? (laughs) I think the meanest thing I ever did to one of of the meanest things I ever did to one of my childhood friends, uh, who I'm probably going to mention in my topic, is... uh, (laughs) I'm curious where this is going to go because I am a childhood friend. No, it wasn't you. Although maybe I did it too. I'm not sure. I just remember uh, whenever I would have a sleepover with somebody. No. Whenever I would have a sleepover in like elementary school, 
I thought it'd be funny to like, I, I would usually fall asleep last and I would go up to somebody at like 3 a.m., shake them, wake and go, hey, wake up. It's time to go to bed. You and did do that to me. get really pissed off. <laughs> yeah, you did that to me. I was very mad. I was very mad. Um, this one is very tricky because breaking news, sleep is good for you. And, and actually, in fact, there have been many explorers and even during wartime, there have been people who have died because of their lack of sleep. Uh, specifically World War One, this was a much bigger problem than I ever realized. When you're fighting in the trenches and there's a lot of, you know, bullets flying at you and things like that, you go into shock and you're actually not able to sleep because of, you know, bullets flying at you and things like that. Uh, and a lot of people just didn't make it because of it. It was a combination of things, the, the weather being outside and uh, what is that? Bullets flying at you. But um, lack of sleep is a major problem. You know, it's crazy because... You said shell shock, but essentially it is the exact same thing as PTSD. We just have a different term for it. There was another one in between that, that they used. For yeah, it. I don't I but don't remember But it was the same condition that they just named across like the ages that this is not related to this at all. But just I, it's something I've always found interesting is like PTSD has always been an issue. They just called it something different and they started treating it only yeah, recently. I knew shell shock, but I don't remember anything between that. I think Vietnam had a different term for yeah, it as well. they did. I think it was called the spookalies. Um when someone has high If you don't th- treat that, you get a, a full-blown dukalis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that where you just shit yourself in terror all the time? Uh, that sounds kind of insensitive. <laughs> that was actually pretty insensitive. That's okay. It's rumor flies. <laughs> Josh's dad is a veteran, Greg. He's going to kick oh, your ass. Oh, God. Six ways to Sunday. You goddamn better believe it. Um, when someone has hypothermia, it's very hard for them actually to sleep. Your body is shaking and shivering uncontrollably, but going to sleep usually isn't that easy. Severe hypothermia victims can fall asleep before they pass away, but in not every instance is it bad for them to go to sleep when you believe they have hypothermia. There is a big debate about this uh, from what I've read about it and, it, and it does depend on the severity of the hypothermia. But the problem is, is... I mean, as you can imagine, it's very hard to guess what the severity of the hypothermia is um, in the heat of the moment, pun intended. <laughs> See, I think like the idea would be so it's debated whether you should or not. It's mostly because you don't know what level of hypothermia they have. It could be like a very mild case. But where the scales tip. And that's the thing. You'd have to have the research like in front of you to be able to read all the symptoms. And that's not always readily available. Fair enough. You don't have the literature right there. So the reason why I think like the let them sleep thing would work well is because it just allows the autonomic nervous system to be able to like actually do its thing. You're kind of, that's what sleep is. It's a maintenance mode. Right. But here's the problem, though. When you go to sleep, your body temperature drops. Mm. So it is kind of counterproductive to what you're trying to do. Okay. So, counterpoint. Good one. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I try, Ryan. That was just blind reasoning for me right there. No, but it makes a lot of sense. Because and- I just figured, like, you know, you're not using your extremities. You're not trying to put any you know, blood flow or heat towards them. I mean, obviously, when you're very cold uh, or you're going in, like, series of hypothermia, you stop getting blood flow to your extremities. Everything goes right. to your core. Right. So, I figured just during sleep, it would just be less things to dedicate more, you know, Ram too. Well, I guess it's- and think about it this way. Typically, when I go to sleep, I love to be cold. But I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'm sweating profusely. And that really doesn't make sense because my body temperature is supposed to drop while I'm sleeping. But that's not always the case. And I think it has to do with that blood flow, like you mentioned. Maybe. I'm the same way. It's so much harder to sleep if I'm just even a degree too warm. You know, yeah. I used to sleep in jeans. I don't know how I did that, but I can't do that anymore. I do like it cold. 
I don't know how you did a lot of things that you used to do, Ryan. I still like sleeping on the floor. <laughs> yes, I can vouch for that. Now, when it comes to me personally, I would tend to err on the side of caution and keep someone awake and try to warm them up, like I mentioned before, with the the warm bottles under the armpits. I know I keep referencing that, but that has been brought up so many times in all the research that I've done that it is a really good way to try to warm somebody up or also feed them, you know, high high carbohydrate. Try to feed them high carbonated foods to get their metabolism going to warm up their body. I mean, a slap will just, you know, wake them up and also warm their face. Um, I don't know the science behind, so I'll allow it. But I think that, I mean, it sounds reasonable to me. Um, so yeah, when it comes to hypothermia, a lot, the biggest problem that comes with it is knowing what the severity is. Warming them up by dipping them in the jacuzzi is not a good way of doing it. You want to, you want to warm somebody up very slowly. Letting them sleep isn't necessarily a bad idea, but you need to make sure that um, they don't go to sleep forever, pretty also, much. Also, can I only can I say the only feasible situation I can think of, aside from living in Iceland where there's hot springs, for using that whole hypothermia and a jacuzzi deal, mm-hmm. is if they just find somebody very drunk and very outside in Aspen or something. As from at, like to a kind of outside? <laughs> yeah, like he's... Or, or kind he of is, in Aspen? They, they found him like... A hundred feet away from the ski resort and he just could not crawl his way back to his room. He has hypothermia. They have to dip him in the hot tub. That's the only feasible reason I can think of like that being a thing. Well, and that's part of the problem is that most of these hypothermia cases, like you mentioned, tend to happen in older people. I think it's something like 600 people a year still die of hypothermia. And and when you're older... Yeah, we, we are blessed to not have... Extremely cold weather here. Even in our coldest time, we, we wouldn't have uh, frozen to death. And uh, essentially, a lot of people go without power, and they just end up freezing to death in their apartment if they're in like above the Mason-Dixon line, essentially. So. Yeah, and, and part of the problem is with um, when, when you're older, something of your body temperature dropping below 95 can cause some form of hypothermia. You know, I feel like if Greg was here right now, he would have said hashtag blessed. <laughs> I almost brought up the fact that you, of course, Josh, use the Mason-Dixon line as a point of reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, that That's it on hypothermia for this evening. All right. So let's move on to my topic. And that is going to be fire. All my topics are about fire tonight. And this first topic is going to be pretty specific. And then the other one's going to be kind of like a grab bag, kind of how Josh's was about hypothermia. But essentially... I, once again, this is something that was completely random in terms of how we doled out all the topics, but I was a little bit of a pyromaniac as a kid. No, I am not a serial killer, okay? I know that... That's part of the trifecta. To, I know it's part of the trifecta, but that they don't have the other things. They didn't kill animals. I, I love animals uh, more than anybody. And you didn't have a brain injury, right? Anyway, so... Um, right? So the first topic we're going to talk about is building a fire in a cave for warmth. And whether you should do it or shouldn't do it. So here's my thing here. Just simple Josh logic, which we all know is very flawed. Building a fire in a cave would entail that the smoke and everything gets trapped in there and you could die. That's the first concern. I was actually going to bring that up secondary to what the actual concern should be. But we can start from there. But I wanted to have a little quick story that just in the cursory research, do you know that there's a giant debate on whether Neanderthals actually uh, tamed fire or not. 
No, I never thought about it. Yeah, apparently there was some sort of uh, documentary a while ago called Quest for Fire that involved them claiming that, you know, the reason why humans advanced beyond Neanderthals because they never discovered fire. Uh, the Neanderthals, that is. Uh, yeah. Neanderthals, however they say it. <laughs> Pricks. And then I saw an article by this uh, one archaeological society that was like, or actually it might have been paleontological. How do you say that? Paleontological? I think that's right. I wish Greg was here. Tomato, potato. Um, so um, <laughs> they actually went and double-checked themselves because they doubted that documentary and were just like, no, there's no way the Neanderthals found it. They didn't survive without fire. Turns out that everything they did to like search for the history of fire, which is there's like three different stages of fire discovery. There is acknowledging how it acts. Like that's something the chimpanzees can do. They can actually see how fire works. They know where it moves to. And then instead of like running away from being scared, they move into the burnt brush to forage. That's what the first stages of human development were when it came to taming fire. That's not a good move if you're trying to tame fire where something that could catch on fire. Well, no, it was just like they see brush. They know that like not to run away from the fire when they see it. They know to just like that's going to move on. So they go into the burnt areas to forage after. I got you. The second stage is being able to use fire after it is naturally occurring. So say there's a lightning strike. Uh, I was just going to bring that up. They can take that fire somewhere else and then use it. And then the third stage is obviously taming it and be able to control it the way they see. Now, the interesting part about that is, is like for ancient human sites, Homo sapiens, they found out that like the way to discover how they were using fire is if their tools were burnt or not, because apparently they oh, used that tools makes that sense. That's cool. Either they were used as like you know very rudimentary tools, uh, anything to like chop or just like you know Basic- a hammer with a stone, but it could also be to tame a fire, like to actually like. Conceal it. Basically, it's forging. <clears throat> it's not forging. Well, in a sense, it is. It's more of just the Smokey the Bear way of putting rocks around a campfire. Well, no, I get that, but if their if their tools were burnt, I mean, it's forging in a sense. No, I'm saying their tools were burnt because it was just multi-purpose. Oh, okay, it, like, okay. We're talking about the most rudimentary of tools. I got you. Okay, a rock is meant as like a hammer. I got you. And then it also is meant to just kind of contain a fire around it. A banana. Yes. <laughs> uh, Neanderthals are a little bit different. What they would do is they had tools, but everything they found was not burnt. So they thought that, like, you know, oh, well, I guess some of the tools are washed away. But, you know, water and wind can't selectively pick which tools are burnt or not. Yeah. and just wash them away. Right. So it was fascinating because not only that, they found out that not only had they not built fires, the only times they were actually using fires is what was during summertime. The time when you didn't think they would need to be warm. Yeah. Huh. So there's that's a twofold interesting part. Number one, it shows they actually probably didn't know how to actually tame a fire or like create one themselves. Yeah. Because lightning and thunderstorms are more prevalent during the summer and more likely to start a fire with dry brush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The reason they'd preserve it. Yes. Secondly, we can't figure out how the fuck they survived without fire in the winter. Like they don't know. That's the crazy part about it. Because they said they didn't start fires in the winter because they couldn't. So maybe they revenanted it, 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 it. So anyway, going from there, when you think about a campfire, like for a cave, you said it right there. Where do you think a good place to put a fire in a cave would be? Uh, Greg, I imagine by Josh, the, by, oh, the the entrance. Entrance. by the entrance. Josh, by the by the entrance. By the entrance. Okay. Meaning that somewhere that allows the smoke to escape, so you don't pretty much smother yourself. That's and that is a very fair assessment to that. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't really see any other. Uh, argument against it except for the one I'm about to mention so 
the main reason why some people say that you should not start a fire outside of a cave or inside of a cave is because of something called thermal expansion. Okay. It turns I'm following out that the depending on the cave you're using, there could be a type of rock, particularly sandstone or granite. Granite's a little bit more resilient. They had countertops? But, yes. <laughs> um, sandstone, they have laminate and vinyl caves. <laughs> uh, so they have a... Uh, if you have a sandstone formation, like a very... Like, uh, we're talking about caves right now. We're talking about very small caves. Yeah, I imagine it's not something that's very deep. Yeah, we're not talking about, like, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, which, by the way, is one of the most awe-inspiring experiences you could ever see. Shout out David Flora. Yeah, sure. Hey, David. (laughs) He actually built it himself. I I heard that. He carved them stalagmites. but (laughs) No, just the stalactites. So... Pretty much the deal is, is that we're talking about the ones that's just like a small recessed cave and possibly like, uh, let's just say like a clearing or a cliff. Uh huh. So that would be the one that's more likely to be sandstone. Sandstone is not exactly the most resilient of stone. And if you were to expose to high temperatures at a fast rate, thermal expansion will cause the rock to expand. Right. And potentially collapse the cave. Okay. So I did a little bit of research and lo and behold... There have been deaths recently from that happening. Was it in Boulder, Colorado? It was not in Boulder, Colorado. Okay. No, don't. You can, you can build a campfire in a Boulder. It's fine. It's already in the ground. He gets it. This guy gets it. Who me? <laughs> that that answered the question. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it turns out that in Britain there was a little camping trip for a youth group. I believe it's pronounced Britain. So in Britain, why do I keep getting my brain stopped up for a second? Uh, in Britain, there was a youth group that went on just a little camping trip in the forest and they found a little cave and they actually didn't need to camp out there or anything like that. But one of the campers actually started a fire by the mouth of the cave, like you said, mm-hmm. and it collapsed and killed somebody while he was sleeping. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So it's a case by case basis because... It turns out that when you set up this fire, sandstone could be one of the situations or it could be granite. Granite, most likely it won't happen. But unless you're a geologist or somebody that's a very good survivalist or wilderness expert, just don't set up your fire at the mouth of the cave for two reasons. Number one, the one you just mentioned, which you're going to get to. Number two, uh, it can collapse and even if it doesn't crush you, it, it can close the entrance you and you're just out. stuck in there. Mm-hmm. Goonie style. Yeah. So let's talk about why. Wait, no, no. Yeah. You've never seen the Goonies, you motherfucker. And I vow not to. So the other issue is starting it right outside the cave. So I, I assume this guy started right at the mouth to the point where the heat was still exposing the rock to the fire. Right. You know? Yeah. This one, I guess you're talking about is like just outside of it to the point where it's not. Even in the cave. It's just a couple of feet away. I, I When I imagine this, yes. And I was also kind of thinking along the lines of thermal expansion that if you set it by the mouth of the cave, it, the heat will eventually work its way back and warm you up. Well, guess what, motherfucker? Wind. It will hotbox you and kill you. Carbon monoxide oh, poisoning. I didn't think about that. Yes. When exposed to the elements, number one, your fire isn't going to last that long if the wind comes along or the rain comes along. So then you're screwed in the first place. And also... Uh, you can, if you open it right outside there, the carbon monoxide could kill you. The lack of oxygen could kill you. That's fair. Uh, and then you could also, the lowest thing on the priority list is you could harm the wildlife inside the cave. Yeah, not worried about that. Sorry. Especially if you're in one of those do or die situations. Now, with that being said, 
it's really not good to start a fire in a cave if you don't know the rocks very well. I can agree with that. But if you were to, you should start it in the back of the cave with your back facing the back wall so the heat will bounce off of the wall and yeah. then back onto your back. And and to kind of piggyback off what you said as far as uh, rocks, the thermal expansion and falling, rocks are typically more sturdy towards the back of the cave because they've been there for so long. Yes. So it's less likely to, f- to fall and crush you while you're sleeping. But more importantly, uh, one thing that has been elaborated in the articles that I've seen is that you should actually build a fire counterintuitively to what the Boy Scouts teach you or the Girl Scouts or actually just the Scouts. I was going to say it's just the Scouts now, apparently good on them. We're going to get hate mail for that. I don't care. (laughs) Probably. Um, So the way that most people would build a fire is they put the tinder at the absolute bottom of a fire so that the heat rises up and then causes the denser wood to catch fire and then it lasts longer. Gotcha. Now, do you swipe left or swipe right? Oh, I was waiting Shut- for it. I was waiting for it. I appreciate it. I feel like I'm being telepathically told a <laughs> Tinder joke right now. <laughs> when will Greg get out of my life? I'm just kidding. Don't don't send bad emails to Greg, please. Uh, so, um, <laughs> or do? No, don't. Anyway, it turns out that what you're supposed to do is you want to make a counterintuitive fire to the point where it's mainly ember based. So you want the tinder in the uh, uh, on the top so it kind of falls down to the bottom. It's really weird the way it works because I've seen like a lattice type of material and you want to put like the small sticks on the top so that it burns out fast and then it's mainly just hot coals because you have like an actual fire where you can see a lot of the flames. That mm-hmm. means it's like rapid uh, heat that it, can heat up the rocks very fast and cause that collapse. And by seeing more uh, embers like you were saying, that also means it's less controllable. Well, more embers is a good thing. You I'm sorry, the, uh, more flames. I'm yes. sorry, more rapid flames. You want just those embers because it's like just more of a radiating thing, like yeah, slower, exactly. and it's less likely to cause some sort of collapse. It, it's kind of like comparing a furnace to like a barn fire. Yeah. So honestly, I, I can't give you the best tips. I, once again, we're not lawyers and we're not survivalists. Uh, and we're not doctors. We're not doctors either. But for the survival thing... Do a little bit of research about where you're going to, I would say, and see what kind of uh, geology you have in that area. So if there is a situation, you know whether it might be safe or not to start a fire. Hmm. So that's what my I would say. Go to the internet. Find out where you're going. Find out the land formations. That's it. I think that's a very reasonable precaution to take if you're i don't want to give any more tips than that well no if you're undergoing uh such a like a strenuous environment where you're going to be um i don't want to say like isolated but you're going to be far enough away to where you're going to have to rely on yourself it's good to know the elements that you're going to be exposed to like for instance when i went to alaska i wanted to go in the middle of may because i knew it wouldn't be as cold yeah fair enough yeah so anyway uh is that it for you this evening that's it on the you're first up. topic okay my last topic this evening that I'm covering is eating snow as a source of water. This is a weird one for me because when you think about it, it's quite a simple solution. You need water more than food to survive and, and snow is a source of water. So voila, there it is. And it reminds me of what we covered in one of our other survival episodes about when you're in the desert and you need water so you can drink water from a cactus, which we also said you shouldn't do. Ah, the desert snow, the cactus. But uh, just as a quick little... Uh, what? Well, that's what you said. That's just the way to get water. The desert snow. I, I mean, I like it. Uh, so just real quick. No, we're not talking about eating yellow snow. Uh, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. We're talking about just eating snow, period. 
for yeah, survival. Yeah, um, but there actually is also a specific way you're supposed to do it as well, which I'll get into in a second. But um, yeah, like very intimately. Yes, very intimately. And if you remember from that survival episode with uh, with you make drink- a snow dough <laughs> when drinking water out of a, out of a, you know what? That's pretty much what it is. I'm sorry. I'm not even joking. <laughs> you rude mf'er. Um, it, you're not supposed to drink water of a cactus. So if you forgot that, now you remember. Um, but here it actually isn't a bad idea. In fact, it's something that survivalists recommend when you're out in the cold weather and you need to drink water to survive, but you need to do it in moderation, which is also key in all of my topics. Moderation is the way to go. See, calories don't really matter when you're out in the wilderness. It's not to say that you shouldn't completely disregard them, but you need to be hydrated in order to remain effective in a survival situation. When you in the military is is a really good example. If you go so long without water, you're completely combat and ineffective is what is what they call it. And you need to have some source of nutrition and water is the easiest way to maintain your body temperature and to maintain hydration and to be effective when in the field of combat. Um, I know being, you know, getting shot at is not the same as being in the wilderness, but they're also they're both very strenuous situations in their own right. And you need to be on, you know, on top of your game when you, you know, need to survive. Josh, you just realized something. Yep. In every survival episode, you have covered what to use as a water source. You've covered the cactus, salt water, and now snow. Oh, the trifecta. Yeah. For the next episode, it's going to be Nuka-Cola. That should be a wink-wink. So, um... <laughs> uh, well, you know, kind of referencing another episode... Um, there is a famous group of people who eat snow all the time to survive. The Inuit people. Um, it's how they've actually managed to stay alive for so long. That's the name we've landed on, right? That is the name we have, in fact, landed on. We did uh, it. <laughs> thank you, Claire. Uh, you, if you remember that in a survival situation, our water requirements actually increase because of the harsh environments. So that basically means you need more water in you than you normally would because of everything that you're exposed to. And on average, your you know average bear needs about four liters of water per day. That's the the ballpark number that they give. And the more I read about this, the more I really deduce that the origin was you don't eat snow dot 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 because your lips will get chapped, which is very uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. How inconvenient! Oh it's my very, god, it's very uncomfortable. And there is something to that, but. If you've ever been in a bone-chilling cold environment, which, again, doesn't apply to us at Rumor Flies because we live in New Orleans, uh, you know how much chap lips suck, though. Welcome to the Inuit snowball stand. We got some soft snow. <laughs> We've got some compressed snow. To be fair, the freeze this winter was pretty intense. Yeah, it We've sucked. got a block of ice, and then we have seal-flavored snow. <laughs> um, but chap lips... make slushies, too. <laughs> Chapped lips are usually the least of your worries in a situation like this one. And the recommended way of actually eating snow is to roll it up in a ball and suck on it over time. That way you're not getting the brain freeze and maintaining being hydrated at the same time. There was an individual who did just that while lost in the Himalayas. Dude managed to survive for 43 days before being rescued by just sucking on snow. What? Yeah. No, he had to have eaten something. I mean, I'm sure he did, but for the most part, he survived on sucking on, sn- on, on snow. Okay. We should have gotten him on the show. Yeah, I didn't get a name, actually. I guess in hindsight, that was not a good idea for He's me. He's in witness protection now. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, in short, the best thing to do when you're in a survival situation is to eat snow in small increments by rolling up in a ball and just sucking on it. It's okay. really, really simple.
I, I like the fact that we had a, a quick and dirty one. Yeah. Um, so the last one that I'm going to be talking about and the last one for the night before a little bonus is, uh, we're going to do some more fire mess. Like I said, so just melt the snow. We're done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks everybody. Bye. It's actually about building the fire that you don't want to put at the mouth of a cave. And I'm mainly going to be talking about the mechanical friction based fire where you, it involves just like rubbing wood together in one way or another. Um, I'm going to say this now, which I should have said at the beginning of the episode. This is our honorary primitive technology episode. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. He shouldn't do a podcast. He's not a very big talker. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, which is what I like about his YouTube channel. Because he shuts the fuck up. But... And he just does it. Um, so we're going to talk about a few different ones. Um, let's go ahead and start with just rubbing two sticks together to start a fire. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. See it in tons of movies. You saw it on Castaway. Castaway is a good reference for a lot of survival myths. It Even actually it was really in the is. Snow, uh, I didn't watch The Revenant yet, but I felt like I watched another movie in the cold where they had to start a fire. Probably any Snow other Dogs. Movie in the cold. It might have been Snow Dogs. <laughs> it might have been Jingle All the Way. It might have been Christmas with the Cranks. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> so the just plain rubbing two ticks. Uh, so just rubbing the two sticks together. Yeah, it works, but you have to do it in a pretty specific way if you want to have it most effective. I was going to say, from what I understood, you need to have either specific types of wood or there's a certain angle you need to do it on. So the way that I saw it to be most effective was you get two generally long sticks, like what you would consider to be like walking sticks. Uh-huh. And you get a rock and then you kind of like carve a little channel into one of the sticks. Kind of like a uh, like a, a dip. Yeah, you right? take a little dip. Yeah. yeah. And then you take the other stick, sharpen it a little bit, and just start going back and forth a little bit until you start getting some sawdust going on. Yeah. And then once you get the sawdust going on, you That's start going faster, harder, faster, harder. And eventually you will have an ember from that. Now you want to have a bo- uh, like a bundle of kindling very close by for that. Um, and kindling can be any sort of like dry like wood shavings. Or, yeah, yeah. It is one you don't generally don't want it to be another stick of wood. And that's uh, that's actually how primitive technology actually. That's how he starts most of his fires. Is just that method you were talking. See, about. I'm survival stupid. I was in Boy Scouts, but I don't remember any of it. But yes, that's <laughs> apparently one of the ways that you do it. I just remember seeing somebody uh, play Freebird on a guitar with a hot dog. Uh, no, he was playing Freebird with corn dogs. He was air guitaring it. And just completely shredded those around the campfire. But that's about all I learned. Uh, so, anyway, that works. Now, in terms of, like, which wood to find is a little bit of a different story. Something that has been called the thumbnail test has been used. Where it says that, in, ju- in judging by what wood you should use to start a fire, generally there is, in no means of scientific term, hardwood and softwood. Hardwood, <laughs> okay. Hardwood is considered the more dense ones, and softwood is considered the more um, the the lighter ones, the less dense ones. I guess would be the easier way to say it. Think um, oak versus pine wood. Okay. So it, it's all by density. Now, softwood is better for starting a fire, and hardwood is better for sustaining a fire. It takes a longer time to get started, but at the same rate, it's uh, more effective in the end. Yes, it'll last you. longer once it gets started. Okay. Um, and the, what a lot of people say is that you can actually just like use one of your fingernails and just imprint it in like some wood 
to find out how good it is for starting a fire or using it as a basis for actually keeping a fire going as okay. fuel. And if the divot, if like your nail is able to divot it a little bit, you can scratch some of the wood off. Then it's a soft enough wood to use as a kindling. And if not, then it's a hard wood and it's dense and you should use it for just like long-term fuel. Huh. Turns out this is not scientific at all, and oh. you can have situations where let's just run down the gamut. Uh, I the outer layer of a tree. I really wish I. I think it's called the xylem. I really wish uh, I had like Greg here to look it up. I think it's called the xylem, the outer layer of a tree where the bark is and everything. That can be a different softness than the actual thickness of the wood. Well, that's what they used to make the the instrument out of, huh? It's a xylem phone. Yes, a xylem phone. Yes, funny. Two points to Josh. So, and then afterwards, uh, another thing is even assuming that you have like the bark the outer, off and everything. The outer covering is just called the bark. I think the outer covering is just called the bark. <laughs> Maybe it's not the silent. But pretty much, uh, even if you have the bark taken off and you just have the actual like main wood right there. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's just a fifth grade class somewhere who is just losing their mind right now. Getting angry. Uh, so anyway, if you just use the outer bark, still consider the fact that it might have rained beforehand. The wood could have expanded, gotten wet, and then also it could be a very dense wood, but the outer layer is able to be peeled off a little bit more. And you're, yeah, you're able to use that. So then you might be screwed. Yeah. No, like it, so that wood would not. I'm sorry, be you're not able. To, you're not able to use it. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it could simply just it being moisturized or just wet to the point where it can be scraped off. Well, can you imagine like getting it and sneezing on it? And you're like, oh. No. Speaking of sneezing on it, we're going to talk about another element of this uh, fire starting myths. We're going to go into the actual, it, you've seen like the rubbing the hands together over yeah. one stick and then making. So what I was talking about was like just making a divot in the wood to cause that. Another yeah. way is like people carving like a little tiny hole in one block of wood and then using a pointy sharp stick and then just constantly rotating it they call it the drill method because also there's sometimes they attach a handle and they just drill it as fast as possible to start the kindling it kind of looks like a bow almost when they when they're going back yeah and forth yeah, like yeah. That. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a way to actually get it like uh like just rigged up to just keep spinning faster and faster to the point where it causes a ember a lot faster well just a, a little inside baseball on me i have no idea why i know this because i am not a survivalist at all you just <laughs> talked about primitive technology you've at least watched it i've watched every, i watched literally every video he's had i think it's fascinating but i if i was ever like in the middle of the wilderness and got stranded i would be so screwed you know i think it's at this point that we should say that our special guest primitive technology is here and <laughs> um he hasn't said much and uh, up, guys so anyway, uh, the next topic is going to be pertaining. The next two topics can to be pertaining to that method of like the drill method of starting a fire. Oh uh, well, wait. Where does sneezing come into play? Because it is something called nose grease that people like to use for. Is that snot? No, it's not. I didn't know what nose grease was at all until I looked it up a little bit. What uh, is it? It's uh, supposedly the idea that. In order to lubricate the wood, in order to make it the fire start easier, mm -hmm. you can use oil that's as simple as like the oil on the outside of your nose. Ah, like just rub the tip with the outside of your nose. Huh. Number one, no. Oh, <laughs> nobody's <laughs> now. Nobody's ever been that oily. I mean, I'm Italian, and I'll go by my stereotype. I've never been that oily. <laughs> and secondly, give me my pasta. Give me my pasta. My nose, the grease. Uh. And secondly, think about a situation 
where when do you feel really greasy? Eating Italian food. Well, eating Italian food, that's one thing. <laughs> but let's go with weather. Do you, would you think you're more greasy? Oh, or like, when it's hot. Yeah, for when sure. it's hot. In this cold situation where you need to start a fire, do you think you're actually going to be able to get enough nose grease going on right now? Probably not. Yeah. So that one cuts that one down pretty fast. The last one that I have to talk about is the opposite of it. So first you use grease, which is actually an oil, which can conduct heat pretty well. I, I can see the logic behind it. Even though it's not true, I can understand why somebody would Start say Start a that. grease fire. Yeah. The, sec- the second one, I don't know why anybody thought it'd be good. Spit on the tip of the drill. You know, I can kind of understand that as well because it's also a form of lubrication. So I went from two different angles from there. I was trying to think. I was like, just spit patooey or do like a straight up loogie on the drill. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be overly gross, but there's a difference. No, right no, no. There. But I was going to say there, there is a difference between the two. It's like water versus gack. And uh, when it comes to that, I, it turns out that neither of them works. That doesn't surprise me, but I can understand. Because it expands yeah. and warps the wood to the point where you wet it down and it just kind of, you can grind down to nothing. It's essentially giving it a buffer for it to not catch on fire. Yeah, I can understand. The drier, the better. Yeah. So that doesn't work either. Um, if you want to start a good fire, uh, I mean, there's tons of tips online. I really don't, I, I don't feel as uh, comfortable telling you how to start a fire in the wilderness. There's plenty of ones online. If you go on a camping trip, just... Go prepared. Look at what you need to know. But I'll tell you what else doesn't fucking work. Lemons. What? Yeah. <laughs> this is a little bonus factoid since I thought this was going to go a bit short, which it did. Um, apparently, there is a video going around online saying that you can start a fire using lemons. and Like whole lemons. And copper tacks and zinc tacks and a couple of wires. You know, there's a video of like these guys like attaching a bunch of... It, in theory, it makes sense. In chemistry, batteries work by means of uh, a cathode and an anode. Right. And one end, you just it's electron flow. Positive and negative. Yes, positive and negative. And you can use different elements, in this case, zinc and copper, I, to I'm make a cathode so or an anode. Yeah. And if you have enough acidity, you can actually channel some of the electrolytes, literally the electrolytes in a lemon, to go through that and cycle. But the thing is, the way heat has happened, uh, the way... Straighteners happen. This is actually fun because it's combining the chemistry and engineering that I have studied. And that's the way you can make the battery with the lemon is by making a cathode or nanode with the zinc and copper to channel those electrolytes and then the electrons, therefore, to go through the actual lemon if you have a circuit made by connecting wires from the cathode to the anode to whatever other load you I mean, have. That, that totally makes sense, yeah. Now, the way you can actually start a fire, like this is how electrical fires happen, is short circuits. When right. you don't have resistance in a circuit, um, amperage goes up. And, and essentially you have through, two things. Yeah. You have two things that uh, are dangerous about electricity, voltage and amperage. And I've wanted to say this for a while. I don't know why. Uh, the way to look at electricity easily enough is you have voltage, amperage, and resistance. Yep. V voltage, equals IR. And I'm going to put this into, yes, V equals IR, Ohm's law. And the um, way I'm going to put it into an easier way to... Um, understand it is that think of a garden hose so the water uh the water that you're putting through i see where you're going with this and this makes it, a lot of sense it's great it's this made this made it click for me immediately I get it. yeah it's great the amount of water say you have a gallon of water mm-hmm. that's your voltage yep and you're trying to get a gallon of water through a garden hose once you turn your spigot on yep the amperage is how fast the water flows the, yeah 
And why you said V equals IR, you can rearrange that to be I, I which is the current, is V, the voltage or the gallons the divided by resistance. Now, what's the resistance? The diameter of, of the, the hose. hose. So that one gallon of water over a certain amount of time mm-hmm. could either just like plop on you and not hurt you, or you could technically laser, well, not laser cut something, you could hydraulically cut something in half if you have a thin enough and high enough pressure. Imagine putting your thumb on the on top of the spigot exactly to shoot that. it out. Mm-hmm. That's the you. way that voltage, amperage, and resistance work. Yep. It's not voltage that kills you. It's the amperage and how hard it runs through your body. That's one of the first things they teach you in electrical engineering. That's how some people can light <laughs> a light bulb with a Tesla coil and touch it and then yep. just like have it running through their body. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy thing. That went ahead. I just need to get that out at one point. No, dude, that's brilliant. I, I love it. That's such a good analogy. So it turns out that, um, let me see if I can get the numbers up for it. Yeah, so uh, a lemon, uh, number one, about 1.1 amps can kill you, and I'm probably going to get some hate mail about that because I'm just quoting that from what I remember from my safety class. I was going to say it's a little bit over an amp. I've been told the same thing. Uh, it turns out that a lemon actually... Well, if you do just two copper wires attached to the cathode, the anode, just short circuit mode onto copper wool, will produce about 0.1 milliamps and maybe 0.7 volts. That's not a lot at all. Yes. Uh, it turns out that a 9-volt battery would work a lot better than I, this. I was just, I and was if you're in a survival say. situation in the cold, I don't know where you got a lemon, zinc cathodes, copper cathodes, uh, uh, or anodes. Anodes, yeah. And then wire. It seems like you're pretty well set up for just a high school science experiment. You're yeah, living comfortable. Much. Um, so don't depend on this, but you can do it with a nine volt battery, but it turns out if you actually want to start a fire with a lemon, you're going to need a whole bag of lemons and completely connect them in series. Yeah. You're going to need a lot more, uh, lemons to go around. Yeah. So, um, Chris Cogswell, if you hear this right now, just give me a shout out on Twitter and tell me if I did good for the chemistry part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, let's, let's do like we typically have been doing. Let's go through one by one. And don't I, leave. No, 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 don't no. Don't you fucking leave, no, listeners, we got, okay? We, got, we, we got, have more things. We got something. We got one more thing to take care of after this. But just to kind of round out this episode, um, to talk about the, the surviving in the cold, hypothermia, when it comes to putting someone in a hot tub, don't do that. You warm them up very slowly. Like I mentioned, warm um, water bottles underneath their armpits. Letting them sleep, I would tend to say that you keep them awake. Because it allows their body temperature to increase quicker. Because when you sleep, your body temperature does decrease. And to not feed and not feed someone when they have uh, hypothermia is also not a, not good. You should feed them, but you feed them in small increments of food to raise their body temperature to get the metabolism going. Okay. And then building a fire. Is it safe to do it outside of a cave? Outside of a cave dwelling, or inside of no. a cave dwelling? Essentially, unless you know your surroundings very well. Grant's a little bit better sandstone definitely not no no uh you don't want to do it generally inside or outside of the cave for a myriad of reasons carbon dioxide poisoning lack of oxygen fire eats oxygen forgot to mention that part well we should also mention the 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 holy triangle of fires you need oxygen you need fuel and you need um something to start the fire as well city punch sugar water purple yep so and then afterwards you have um a heat source i'm sorry yes technical term uh, but essentially you don't want to put it outside of the cave, especially because you can either s- smoke yourself to death or you can collapse, collapse the, cave. the cave mouth mm-hmm. and then just put it in the back. If you really have to like put your chips on something, um, 
Moving on, Josh, eating snow for water? Uh, you should do that, but you should roll up in a little ball and suck on it over time. But not the yellow snow. Do it in moderation, not the yellow snow. No. Uh, fire building mist. Yes, you can use two sticks and rub it together if you do it in a certain way. There's also other ways. Look it up online. Like I said, I'm not a survivalist. Um, <laughs> Bring a Zippo. However, thumbnail test. Completely inaccurate. Do not try to do that. Or, I mean, guess, do it, whatever. If you're desperate in a survival situation... Anything might help you. Who knows? Yeah. Take what? a Hail Mary. Just know that it's not guaranteed to work. Yeah. Uh, nose grease. Doesn't exist pretty much. Not even the greasiest purse could probably lubricate that type of stick. And no lemons. For the drill. Uh, no lemons and also don't spit on the drill if you have oh, that situation. Good point. Uh, shout out to, you know, the YouTube channel Primitive Technology. It sounds like they really need a boost from us. Or again, so. if you have any other, you know, questions about being in the cold, Dave Stecco is the way to go. Yes. Uh, also, next time we do a survivalist episode, we should just like watch a couple episodes of Man vs. Wild and just use Bear Grylls as a proof of concept of what to do. Because he goes to the extreme even if he doesn't have to do it. Yeah, he does. Killed an alligator, that asshole. Um, so anyway, uh, that is our episode per se. You can find us, like I said, Rumor Flies, stay, don't leave podcast.com you can find us at rumor flies on all our social media stay don't leave all the shits you can, you can leave you can uh you know leave us a good itunes review yeah leave us an itunes review we'll go down that route and also if you like what we do and feel like you want to give us a donation and a, a little high five of swords patreon.com slash rumor flies yeah and now we have a special t- presentation from rumor flies so, as we had mentioned in the last episode, one of our Twitter friends, Julia, had so succinctly said that I happen to have a voice very similar to that of Jason Marsden of the, uh, your childhood fame, probably, depending on what generation you're from. But, uh, and also as a, I guess, attempt to get us all into the voice acting range, except plus me, talk to Funimation, at, at Funimation, it's F-U-N-I- M A T I O N Y O U at Funimation on Twitter. Uh, this is this is our acting reel, so go ahead and just enjoy this excerpt, but slightly changed from the Goofy movie. Yes, we hope you guys had, uh, enjoy the little uh, stepping out of our norm for sure. Um, a more scripted. Anytime I get to do anything Disney, I'm always a fan and I always enjoy it. But we add a little bit of extra Rumor Flies flavor to it. Yes, So we hope sure. you enjoy. Dad, I don't even know how to fish. Oh, come on now. That never stopped me. Let me show you a little family secret that's been handed down for about 12 or 13 goof generations. The perfect cast. The perfect what? The perfect cast. My dad taught it to me when I was about your age. Now, watch carefully. You gotta be loose, relaxed, with your feet apart, and 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, quarter to three, torgy, twist, over, past the do, I'm a little teapot, and the wind up, and let her fly! God. The perfect cast. Uh, Dad, I think that fish just said something. And now, reel her in. That, that looks like a person. Quick! Get the camera! What the hell is your problem, you jackass? Must be over three pounds. I don't want to miss this. Look at this. Uh, Dad? It's Alex Jones! Could you back up a bit, Mr. Jones? You're out of focus. 
Leave me alone, you idiot. I'm a pioneer. I'm an explorer. I'm a human, and I'm coming. Who was the idea? I like to fight, too. I've got the fire of human liberty. I'm setting fires everywhere, and humans are turning on everywhere. Alex Jones! Behold, the legendary Alex Jones. Fable but seldom. <laughs> Quick, get to the car! It's locked! I'm here! Quick, the sunroof! Hurry up! 1776 will commence again! Hurry up! I can't believe it. Alex Jones! And I've got the only video. You're gonna be famous! Now get out of here! Let's just get out of here. Bye. Love you. Yes, uh, so for this episode and every episode of Rumor Flies, I am Josh. I am Ryan. And, I'm and Greg. thanks again, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Please, Funimation, please. Bye.